Welcome to the Siski Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Man, the Corinthian church, boy, they had a lot of questions. And so they, they wrote a letter to their pastor. They wrote a letter to, to Pastor Paul uh, regarding uh, many different things. And again, as we study through uh, this book uh, that we call Corinthians, it's the book of, of 1 Corinthians, uh, remember that this is actually, uh, it's a letter. It's a real letter from a real pastor to a real church who was wrestling with some real issues. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of questions just about how life worked and about how Christianity worked. And we, uh, we saw uh, in chapter 7, as we've kind of been going uh, just verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book, we saw in verse, uh, or pardon me, in chapter 7, that Paul really addressed their, uh, their questions uh, regarding marriage and regarding sexuality and regarding singleness. And, and, you know, Paul is really just answering some questions. The Corinthian church had written a letter again to Paul, and, and, and they really wanted to know how these things work. And so Paul is just laying it out. And the reason I love Corinthians is because, you know, it is a very practical book. It, it just kind of lays out for us practical Christian living. How do we navigate these different areas in our, our walk with the Lord? Well, as we study through Corinthians, boy, we can, we can know how we're to navigate these different uh, situations. And so chapter 7, again, celibacy, marriage, sexuality, uh, singleness. And now Paul in chapter 8 is moving on to the question that the Corinthian church asked about their liberty. We're going to talk a little bit about Christian liberty this morning. But before we get into our text, uh, what is Christian liberty? What does that even mean? So liberty basically just means freedom. Liberty means freedom. Give me liberty or give me death. Remember Patrick Henry? He, he was, uh, you know, speaking to his peers. It was a year before the United States even became the United States. And he's saying, listen, guys, we got to get out from underneath, uh, you know, the, the crown. If we can't be free, then let us be dead. Give us Give us liberty or, or give us death. And, you know, as Americans, man, we enjoy a great deal of freedom. That's one of our things. America, land of the free, home of the brave. It's great. And that freedom that we enjoy was really uh, blood-bought freedom. Uh, men and women fought and died for the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans. But as Christians, man, we experience a freedom that is unmatched. Uh, and our freedom is also blood-bought, but not bought with the blood of, of men and women or sacrifices. But our freedom, our Christian freedom, was purchased with the blood of the Lamb, with the blood of, of Jesus. And who the Son sets free, the Bible says, is free indeed. And so as Christians, man, we are free. But what does that mean that we're free? First of all, there's some things that we are free from. The Bible tells us that we are free from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? Well, Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that we have this sin debt that we owe, that, that's death. When we've sinned, and there's that penalty that we owe. But Jesus paid for that sin. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness in him. That is, on the cross, there was a transaction that took place. Jesus took our sin upon himself, and exchange gave us his righteousness. So that in our lives as Christians, we're now free from the penalty of sin. Man, that is good news. But not only are we free from the penalty of sin, we're free from the power of sin. As Christians, sin no longer has a hold on our lives. We don't have to obey sin anymore. Galatians, Paul wrote this to the Galatian church in Galatians 5.24. He said, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Again, in Romans 6.6, Paul says, our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died, pardon me, <clears throat> has been freed from sin. The idea is that when we're saved, when we're born again, that we identify with what Jesus did on the cross, that we identify with his death, that we're saying, my old nature, my sinful nature, it's, it's been nailed to the cross, and it was buried with Jesus. But then we rise up, we identify with his resurrection in newness of life. So what wonderful truth that is. When we're talking about Christian freedom, man, we've been set free from the penalty of sin. We've been set free from the power of sin. And we've been set free from the law. The law, the law of Moses. We no longer have to try and, and earn God's favor or earn God's love by being good, by, by uh, you know, obeying rules and regulations and staying within the lines. Romans 8 says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. See, Jesus, <clears throat> he set us free from the law. Again, our, our walk, our relationship with God is not based upon our ability to be good little boys and good little girls. Our relationship with God is not on our merit, but on the merit of, of Jesus. And see, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law in its requirement. Jesus is the only person who lived a perfect life. That is the requirement of the law, to be 100% perfect in thought and in deed from birth to death. That's how you can earn favor with God. But who can? Nobody but Jesus. See, Jesus satisfied the, the requirement of the law, and then he satisfied the penalty of the law. When he died on the cross, he took all of the penalty that would have been dished out to us upon himself. So we could just stop right there this morning. When it, we're talking about Christian liberty, man, that is enough to just rejoice in that we've been set free from the penalty of sin. Man, heaven is our home. We're bound for glory. We've been set free from the power of sin. We don't have to serve our sinful desires anymore. We've been set free from the law of Moses. We don't have to relate to God through rules and regulations anymore, but now through his son, Jesus. But see, there's more that we've been set free in, not just set free from, but set free to enjoy. We as Christians have been set free to enjoy everything in the Lord, and that is the Christian liberty that Paul is going to uh, address this morning. The freedom that we have in Christ, the Christian liberty that Paul is talking about, uh, it just means that we're free. 
We're free in respect to the, the activity that is not expressly forbidden in the Bible. There, there's these gray areas, uh, and we're just, we're free to live our lives. If the Bible doesn't expressly forbid it, we're free to uh, enjoy it. That is what Christian liberty means. Romans 14, 14 says, I know and am convinced by the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself. There's nothing that's unclean of itself. We can just enjoy all that the Lord has put in our life. And so now the question that the Corinthian church has about this Christian liberty, all right, so we can just enjoy those things that God has put in our lives, fantastic. They had a question regarding meat sacrificed to idols. Can a Christian eat meat sacrificed to idols? And I know what you're thinking. Like, Pastor Jeremy, I thought you said that this was relevant, that we could apply this to our lives uh, a show of hands, how many of us have wrestled as Christians over the last six months whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols? Nobody? Yeah, exactly. Because we don't wrestle through that stuff. It, it's not applicable to us in our day and age. But what is applicable uh, is this principle, the, the broader question of Christian liberty. Uh, you know, we might not wrestle with whether or not we can eat meat sacrificed to idols, but we wrestle with, you know, should I watch that movie? Should I not watch that movie? Where does my liberty begin and end when it comes to social media? Uh, you know, should a Christian get involved in politics? A hot topic in the church, should a Christian drink alcohol? Should a Christian, uh, you know, use tobacco or drink coffee or get tattoos or, you know, scratch lottery tickets? Uh, you know, and, and we can take what Paul uses to direct the Corinthian church in their eating of meat, and we can apply that directly to our liberty regarding these things. And, you know, I think some of the answers to these questions might surprise you uh, a little bit. But here's what I want us to understand. One more thing before we dive into the text. Is that Christian liberty is not about getting away with as much as we possibly can. There's a story about a lady who went to church and, you know, the, the offering basket was being passed and she, she dug into her church to get her checkbook out. And as she's pulling out her checkbook, the TV remote fell right there in the middle of the aisle. And the usher was kind of shocked and, and he leaned over and he whispered, he said, do you always bring your TV remote to, to church? And she said, oh, no, not usually. But this morning, my husband refused to come to church because he wanted to watch the game. So I, I did the most evil thing I could without actually breaking the law. And, and that's where we are sometimes as Christians. We say, how far can I really push the limit before I'm actually sinning? And you see, Christian liberty, it, it's not about seeing how close we can legally come to sinning without actually sinning. Christian liberty is just exercising the freedom we have in Christ uh, with wisdom and love with God's best for us and our brothers and sisters in view, to enjoy what the Lord has for us. And so with that, let's dig in verse 1 of chapter 8, 1 Corinthians. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. For if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, 
and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom all uh, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom uh, are all things, and through whom we live. So, should uh, a Christian eat meat sacrificed to idols? Again, that was the question that they asked Paul, and this is Paul's response to them. But again, be, before we can really move forward, we have to understand what was going on in Corinth. Uh, as we've discussed previously, Corinth was a very pagan city, uh, much like uh, the other uh, cities of uh, the ancient world, they were really entrenched in idol worship. And there were dozens, if not hundreds, of temples that were dedicated to false gods, to uh, false idols. There were uh, dozens, if not hundreds, altars that accompanied those uh, worship places to false gods. And a part of daily life uh, in Corinth would have been uh, sacrificed that were going up to those false gods. People would bring sacrifice animals to sacrifice. And so that animal that was being sacrificed, it would be something that was going on all the time, every single day. Animals being brought to these uh, temples of false gods to be sacrificed. And that animal would be broken up into three parts, basically. There would be the part that would be given to the god to be burned up on the altar, usually the, 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 the less desirable cuts. And then the rest of that animal would be divvied out uh, into to two portions, to two parties. One portion would go to the individual who brought the sacrifice. The other portion, the remaining portion, would go to the priest who offered that sacrifice up. So you can imagine the guy who's standing there all day long making sacrifices. Every sacrifice that he makes, boy, he's getting a cut of that animal. And so at the end of the day, man, he has more ribeyes than he knows what to do with. And I know that that is a, a, a strange thing to say, that he had too many ribeyes. I, I don't know if that can be a, a real thing or not, but he had too many ribeyes. He didn't know what to do with all this meat. And so what he would do is he would sell that meat at the temple restaurant or at the temple marketplace, and it was sold for a greatly discounted price. And so this meat that was sacrificed to idols, it would be available to anybody at a really good deal. And who doesn't love a good bargain? I mean, everybody loves a good deal. So if you lived in Corinth and you wanted to barbecue a steak for dinner, you had a couple choices. You could go down to the local market and you can buy the, the certified non-idol you know, steak for six times the amount. Or you could go to the, they're called the shambles, the temple market, and you could buy this meat that was offered to idols at a great cost. It was a smoking deal. And so that's what they wanted to know. Is it okay to get this meat and eat it? What if we go to the restaurant there at the temple? Is that okay? Can, you know, uh, what if somebody invites us over for dinner and they, they bring us uh, meat that was uh, sacrificed to idols? Is that okay? And Again, we might say, how is this relevant to us? We don't deal with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. But we do deal with whether or not a Christian should smoke or, or drink or get tattoos and all the rest. And so uh, before Paul gives them an answer to their question, before he, he directly answers yes or no, Paul really gets into the heart of the matter. 
And uh, this was more than just a question for Corinth. That's what you have to understand. This was more than just like, hmm, I'm curious. There was a real debate. There was a real kind of war that was going on between those who ate meat and thought that it was okay and those who didn't eat the meat. They thought that it was, it was wrong. And the, the meat eaters, they were eating the meat according to their superior knowledge, that they had an understanding that the, the non-meat eaters didn't have. And uh, we're going to see that Paul kind of gets into what this is. So those who were, were eating the meat, they, they were filled with knowledge. They were filled with pride. They, they were puffed up. But they were technically right. They, they knew that the idols were really nothing. That the idols that that meat was offered to, that they didn't exist. Like Zeus wasn't a real person. Zeus wasn't a real god. He was made up in somebody's mind. Uh, Aphrodite was not a real goddess. She was made up. She, she was a figment of somebody's imagination. And so those who were okay with eating the meat, they understood that idols are nothing. They don't even exist except for in the minds of the wicked. So what's the big deal? If this meat was offered to a figment of somebody's imagination, then it's just meat. Enjoy. Eat. And they had this attitude towards those who weren't eating the meat, like, hey, what don't you guys get? Get with the program. Enjoy a steak with me. And again, technically they were right. Verses four through six, Paul lays that out. He spells it out. Listen, uh, you know, idols are nothing in this world. There's only one God. It's, it's no big deal. And so as we're looking at this initial kind of response from Paul to their question, if Christians can eat meat offered to uh, idols, and it would seem point one, for the meat eaters. They are ahead. But we have to hold on just a minute because Paul's not done. They might be technically right about whether or not they can eat the meat, but there's more to consider. Uh, and Paul says, you know, we know that we all have knowledge. And Paul here is being a little bit sarcastic. And that's one of the things I love about the Apostle Paul. Is he sarcastic? He's saying to the, the, the puffed up prideful uh, Corinthians who are okay with eating meat, he's saying, listen, we all know things. We all know something. Congratulations, you have some knowledge. But here's the more important question. Do you have love? You have knowledge, but do you have love? You see, the Christian life is not defined by knowledge, but love. Jesus didn't say, the world will know that you're my disciples by your superior knowledge. He said, the world will know that you're mine based on your love, one for another. And so the Corinthians, they had knowledge, but knowledge isn't everything. Paul will go on in chapter 13 to make his point. He says, man, if you can speak the, the tongues of men and of angels, but you don't have love, you're like smashing symbols. If uh, you have the gift of prophecy and understanding and all mysteries and all knowledge, and even if you have faith to remove mountains, but you don't have love, you're nothing. Paul goes on in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 to say, and even if you gave everything that you had to the poor and you, you gave your body to be burned at the stake, but you don't have love, you are nothing. Uh, the Christian life is, is more than just knowledge. Knowledge is good, but love is superior because without love, we're nothing. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say in... Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, a little later on in that chapter, he says that the knowledge that we do have of God, it's limited. That we see in a glass or a mirror dimly. 
But someday we'll see face to face and we'll know as we're known. Right now, from our perspective, there's only so much we can actually know about God. And so Paul says, hey, hold on. Without love, knowledge is, is, is useless. And by the way, knowledge is very limited in the knowledge that we can have of God. You don't know as much as you think you know. And then thirdly, our knowledge of God should stir in us a greater love for God. And the more we love God, the more we should love his people. That's what John tells us in 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. John says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from God, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Paul says, you're missing it. Congratulations. You have knowledge about how this whole thing of idols works. But knowledge without love, it's a, it's a big loss. Because knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us think that we're smarter than we really are. Uh, if, if anyone knows, Paul says, if anyone knows, uh, actually he knows nothing. Uh, the fact that you think you know everything, Paul says to the Corinthians, is evidence that you don't know everything, is what he's saying. So, so knowledge puffs up. But love, on the other hand, love builds up. You think about the difference of being puffed up and built up. There's a difference between a balloon and a building. A balloon, but it's easily popped. It's, it's really, but to be built up, man, on a firm foundation, now that's something. And so Paul is saying, knowledge, fantastic, good, but don't miss out on the more important thing, and that is love. And love always has others in mind. When dealing with this thing of Christian liberty, our liberty, we should always be thinking, how is this going to affect my brother or my sister? And that's what Paul's getting at. Technically, the meat eaters uh, were right, but there's more to it than that. And Paul gets into that in verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says, However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against uh, the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brethren stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother uh, to stumble. So Paul says, technically, meat eaters, you guys are right. Idols really are nothing, but there's more to it than that. Here's some things that you need to consider. And I love that Paul says that. Again, to these guys who are like, oh, we know everything. We've been blessed with this knowledge. Paul says, there's some things that you guys missed. Think about this. First of all, he says, just because you have this understanding about how idols are nothing, not everybody else has the same understanding that you do. Like, you guys get it, congratulations. But there are those in the body of Christ who are at different levels uh, in their maturity, that they don't understand that those idols are nothing and that meat is just meat. Maybe they have been saved out of that uh, idol worship. Very real possibility that some were saved out of that and, and that was something that really bothered them 
and trip them up. And Paul says, hey, listen, not everybody is where you guys are. Be looking out for your younger brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a good word that is for us as the modern church, that not everybody is where you might be. As we sit in here this morning, man, we are at so many different levels of maturity, different places in our walks with the Lord. And, uh, you know, we aren't called to be sin sniffers. We aren't called to be Bible thumpers. We're not to be examining each other's lives and saying, hey, listen, this is wrong. You need to fix that. And this is the, the thing that you need to, to, to do better at. You're doing this the wrong way. And, and that's not what the Lord has called us to do. We are to speak the truth in love. Absolutely. We are to hold each other accountable 100%. But we're to do that in love. And here's a little test. Are you bringing correction in the name of love? Or are you bringing correction in the name of just being a, a cranky, uh, bitter Christian? Right? If you're like, man, I just need to set them straight. And do they not know? How could they do this? This is so irritating. And I, I just, oh, it just gets under my skin that they're... Are you doing it because it bothers you? Or are you doing it to build them up and help them grow? If it's something that just irritates you, man, you're just offended, deal with it. Uh, if you can't come alongside of them in love, then you shouldn't come alongside of them at all. Because here's the thing, you're not perfect the day after you get saved. It would be great. I would love it if that's the way that it worked. Like, man, Lord, I'm committed to you. And then all of a sudden, my life is just perfect. I'm squeaky clean. I don't wrestle with it. That's not the way it works. And I remember when I was a, a young Christian, man, I'd given my life to the Lord. I was so excited to go to church and, and to learn of Christ. And, but I was still wrestling through things. There was things I didn't know, things I didn't understand. So I was still smoking weed and drinking beers and doing stupid stuff. And, and I remember coming into church just super excited. And I remember there were people who would come at me with scripture and condemnation and how dare you, and how can you call yourself a Christian and this and that. And I just didn't get it. And those people, I look back and say, man, they were just a bunch of cranky jerks. It's the people who came alongside of me and loved me where I was. See, here's the thing. We are to be growing in the Lord, and we've talked at length about this. We're not to stay stagnant in the Lord, but we're at different places. And come alongside a brother or sister and, and help them to grow out of those things. Don't, don't beat them up in it. The other thing is, there might be people in our midst who aren't even saved, and that's how it often happens. Someone comes into church, they don't even know Jesus, and you're like, you wore that to church? Like, hey, take it easy. They may not know. And that's Paul's whole, that's Paul's whole point. Say, hey, congratulations, you guys know, but not everybody does. This bothers them, so uh, be careful of that. Uh, secondly, Paul's saying, technically, it really doesn't even matter anyways, right? Uh, he says, you're not more holy for eating meat, and you're not less holy for not eating meat. Uh, it really is a non-issue. But then he says, beware. When he says, beware, that's a warning. Hey, look out. Uh, and his warning is, don't let your liberty harm your brother. Don't let the thing you're engaged in hurt somebody else. Now, how do we know what things we can be engaged in as Christians? How do we know uh, what things we can do and what things we can't do? Just like the Corinthian church said, hey, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? We might say, hey, is it okay if I go to that movie? Or is it okay if I drink that glass of wine or that beer? Is it okay if I smoke that cigar or scratch that scratcher or get that tattoo or, or, or whatever it is? 
There are ways that we can determine if these things are right or wrong. And these topics, man, they are uh, they're hot topics in the church. I remember a, a couple years ago concerning movies, man, you were just not even Christian if you let your kids watch Harry Potter. That was just the way it was. Harry Potter was just evil. Witchcraft and all the rest. But at the same time, those same families would say, hey, we're okay with Lord of the Rings. Uh, we're okay with the Chronicles of Narnia. Newsflash, there's witchcraft and all of that stuff. I don't care if C.S. Lewis wrote it or somebody else did. So there's these debatable things. Uh, should I have a glass of wine or not? Man, very debated in the church. Should I smoke that cigar or, or not? Uh, you would think in some circles that smoking is just like the unpardonable sin. It's the worst thing you could do. But people would be surprised to know, we've talked about it before, that some of the, the great old theologians, they smoked like chimneys. I mean, if your body is a temple, they had a chimney on theirs. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon, he, was, he loved smoking cigars, and he was very unapologetic uh, in that. Uh, should we buy lottery tickets or, or get tattoos? Man, when we are trying to determine as Christians, should I engage in any of these activities? The first thing that we have to ask ourselves is, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible have to say about that? That is always to be our go-to source. That is always to be our standard. The Bible, as Christians, is our absolute authority. We don't have to wonder if murder is wrong. There's no, that's not a gray area, just in case you're wondering. You don't have to wonder if theft is wrong. Uh, there's no gray area there. The problem is, is that our culture would say otherwise. Right? In our culture, it's become trendy to smash windows and rob retailers in the name of justice and reparations. In our culture, it's trendy and okay to murder unborn babies for the sake of our own liberty and our own uh, reproductive freedom. But the Bible is clear, and as Christians, we say, all right, well, what does the Bible have to say first and foremost? And so what does the Bible say about that movie that's questionable? Well, nowhere in the Bible will you see the Christian shall not watch the R-rated movie. That verse does not exist. But what the Bible does say is that we are to put no unclean thing before our eyes. Well, what does that mean, though? Where are we to draw the level when it comes to violence? Or where are we to draw the level, the line when it comes to profanity? I'll tell you where I draw the line with profanity. If they take the, the, the Lord's name in vain, I give them one. Like, okay, maybe it was a... Twice, it goes off. And in fact, I was with my six-year-old son. He was sitting on my lap. We were watching some awesome motocross crashes, and, and this guy tipped over his bike. He said, oh, my God. You know, and, and, and my son said, he said a bad word. I said, you're right, buddy. That's it. That's the only one he gets. And it was a really funny video. Man, he had SpongeBob references and everything else. It was great. But he said it again, and so we turned it off. That was it. So you shall put no unclean thing before your eyes. What does that mean? We know that nudity, is, if there's nudity, no question mark, right? We, there's certain things we do, but there's certain things we don't. What about alcohol? What does the Bible have to say about alcohol? The Bible does not say that a Christian cannot drink. I think that preachers do a great deal of damage by saying that, that Christians aren't allowed to drink because that's not what the Bible says. Jesus drank wine, and it was not Welch's grape juice. It was good wine. Uh, Psalm 104 says that wine makes glad the heart uh, of man. Uh, but, big giant but, can I have your attention please? 
There's a fine line between drinking and drunkenness. And drunkenness is a sin. There's a fine line between having a glass and getting warm and getting buzzed and all of a sudden, uh uh-oh. Then you've wandered off into things that we know without a shadow of a doubt the Bible says no. And the Bible warns us, it cautions us against uh, and the danger uh, of alcohol. We shouldn't approach it lightly. Proverbs 20 says, wine is a mocker. A strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So is that cleared up? Mm, Shoot, I'm still not sure. What about smoking? It's not addressed in the Bible. Again, and there are Christians who say, well, I've got the verse that proves you're not allowed to smoke as a Christian, right? Thou shalt not kill. You can't murder yourself or other people. And, and smoking does both. You're killing yourself and those around you. I don't think so. Nice try, but no. I would say the better argument would be that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But then, for you ameners up front, right, I know you had a fried chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A yesterday. Now, I know that's a holy fried chicken sandwich, but it is still not good for the temple. So we have to say, well, I, I mean, I, I'm, not really, I'm not really sure. Here's the thing. It's expensive, and it, it's not good for you, and it's addictive. You know how much cigarettes are a pack? They're 13 bucks. I was at Walmart in Medford, and to buy a pack of cigarettes is thir- I don't smoke, just in case you're wondering. I just happen to notice that they were 13 bucks a pack. And I don't know what like, the standard is. Back in the day, we smoked a pack a day. That's 400 bucks a month on cigarettes. That I cannot afford, even if I wanted to smoke, which I don't. Again, your pastor does not smoke, <laughs> just so you know. But it, it, it's, is it wise? It's addictive? I, I would say it's probably not the wisest thing. Same thing with uh, if you want to play the lottery. Uh, don't be in bondage to anything, Paul says. I remember one time someone gifted me and my wife some scratchers, and we won like 40 bucks. And we're like, ooh, we could cash this out or we could get 40 more lottery tickets. <laughs> and so we went and got 40 more lottery tickets. We scratched those and then we had five. <laughs> and then we, we, we won a couple more. And you know, it's just don't let it become an addictive thing. Tattoos, people say, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19. Don't forget about Leviticus 19. You shall not tattoo your body or mark your body. Uh, let's put some things in context. That was for the Jewish people. That was a part of the old covenant. Uh, And if you want to take that literally, then every time uh, an old man, somebody with gray hair, when the the man with hoary hair walks in, everybody else needs to stand up. Uh, Also, if you're a farmer, you can't harvest the edges or the corners of your field. Uh, Also, if you want to take Leviticus 19 that way, you can't mix cotton and polyester. Uh, If your kids misbehave, you can kill them. I mean, so it's like, where do we draw the line? And more specifically in Leviticus 19 with the issue of tattoos, and some of you guys know I have a big old honking tattoo on my leg, and there's a long story behind that, uh, and if you want to know, I can share that with you later. But this is not to defend tattoos. I actually tell people not to get tattoos. But the whole idea in Leviticus 19 was don't mark your body for the dead. That was the thing. So if you are going out to get a tattoo because you want to mark your body for the dead, I'm sorry, no gray area. You can't do that as a Christian. So very, very simple. Uh, And also, by the way, Jesus, when he comes riding back on a horse in Revelation 19 to to lay down the law and establish his kingdom, he's got a tattoo on his thigh. It says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, just so you know. (laughs) Also, something that's interesting about tattoos 
is that we just finished up last week talking about, you know, uh, the marriage relationship and how a husband's body belongs to his wife and how the wife's body belongs to the husband. Hey, if you fellas want to go out and get a big neck tattoo and your wife says, I don't think that's a good thing, your, your body is hers. So there, there's all sorts of things to consider. But still, we say, ah, oh, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure. What about drinking? Uh, oh, we already talked about drinking, didn't we? Uh, but we didn't. Oh, yeah. Well, technically, it's okay. Technically, all these things are fine. Technically, you can drink. You can watch the movie. You can do whatever. But if it violates your conscience, then it's, it's a no-go. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a no-go. So your body... Uh, we, there's lots of freedoms that we can enjoy when we are saying what are we going to do uh, in, in terms of these gray areas things first thing we have to ask is what does the scripture say secondly we have to say what does our conscience say what does your conscience say about that because in these gray areas and I'm so glad that God has given us a conscience he's given us an internal compass that, that points us right and wrong and everybody was born with a conscience that's the, the, the interesting thing about the atheists. They have a hard time explaining that. Where did that sense of right or wrong come from if not from, from God? And I, again, I, I told the first service I'm not going to go on that rabbit trail and I won't with you guys either, but it is something to consider. But we have our conscience in those gray areas. Was it right or wrong? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really address it. What does your conscience say? Uh, what does your conscience say? Because what's right for you might not be right for me and vice versa. You might not wrestle with something that I wrestle with. You might have a history that's different than mine. Now, I am not supporting moral relativism. We've talked about that before. Moral relativism says there is no absolute truth. What's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. That's concerning everything. Remember, we listen to our conscience after we consider what the Bible has to say. That is our absolute truth. If your conscience contradicts the Bible, your conscience is wrong, period. End of story. I've had people come to me in their walk and say, man, the Lord clearly told me to leave my wife and kids. That wasn't the Lord, bro. I'm sorry. It, it, it wasn't. If your conscience is in contradiction to the word, your conscience is wrong. Because here's the thing about your conscience. It's not bulletproof. It's only good if it's calibrated. And how do we calibrate it? Before the Lord. What we're doing this morning, we're calibrating our consciences. We're saying, Lord, what does your word have to say about it? That's how we do it, by spending time in prayer and, and in, in worship uh, with the Lord. So uh, be careful. Uh, our, our, our conscience isn't the, the end-all answer. In those gray areas, it, it helps us. It's only good if it's calibrated. And remember that you can damage your conscience. If you feel in this gray area, like I've shared with you, I love smoking. I don't smoke. Again, I don't know why I keep saying that. But I do enjoy smoking. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and if it wasn't bad for me, uh, I would probably still smoke. But the Lord has put it on my heart. For me, it would be a sin if I smoked. Because the Lord has said, uh, it's not for you. Right? If you violate your conscience, not only will it sear it to where that, that alarm bell that goes off says, wrong, warning, 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 elevation, pull up. When you ignore that, when you push that down, it becomes quieter and quieter and quieter and it becomes calloused to where you can't feel it anymore. And so, man, first thing, can we do it? What does the, what does the word say? Uh, what does uh, our, our, our conscience say? Because, again, if you violate your conscience, then it's wrong. Romans 14, 23 says, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. Whatever is done, uh, what is not from faith is sin. 
Uh, so what does the word say? What does our conscience say? And then lastly, and really what Paul is, is driving home here is, does it harm my brother? Should I go to that movie? Should I go to that place? Should I have that drink? Should I have that smoke? Well, how is it going to affect your brother? Now, disclaimer before we get into this. Paul would never allow us to use this principle of not stumbling our younger brother to be a way for a, a legalist to make demands and to bind a Christian walking in their liberty, right? In other words, uh, somebody can't just use this as an excuse to say, well, I don't like what you're doing, and so I'm stumbled by it, therefore you can't do it anymore, or you're stumbling your brother. There's a difference between a stumbled brother and offended brother. Are you guys tracking with me? Right? And Christmas is the, the perfect example. We like our Christmas trees. We go up in the mountains and we cut like 10 big old Christmas trees. Bring a tape measure. That is a free piece of advice. The trees always look smaller in the woods than they do in this room. I'm just telling you. But every year I have people tell me, Pastor Jeremy, don't you know that Christmas trees are not Christian? They're a Babylonian pagan tradition and they want me to take it down and they're offended by it and we have this, this discussion about it. But let me uh, ask this. Are they concerned about the Christmas tree because they're stumbled? They're going to fall into Babylonian idol worship? Pastor Jeremy, it's going to make me, I'm going to, I'm going to start worshiping the Babylonian gods if you leave that. No, they're just offended. They're just cranky about it. They just want to be right. Listen, if you're stumbled, and I would never want to stumble anybody. I want to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. But if I offend your legalism, uh, I'm fine with that. That's just the way that it goes. We don't have to, to worry about that. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm just saying that's not what is meant here. Uh, we don't look to the younger brother or sister to set the standard, but we do look out for them, right? We don't look to them to set the standard, but we look out for them. Uh, we, we want to help them grow so they're not in that place, while at the same time not tripping them up. But Paul's point here is, again, don't let your liberty cause the weaker brother to sin. Don't let your freedom destroy the one that Christ died for. If another brother sees what you're engaged in, uh, is it going to cause them harm? And if the answer to that question is yes, I don't care how technically right you are, you should probably take a step back and not engage in that. Right? Spurgeon smoked cigars. He loved cigars. He was very open about the fact that he smoked cigars. So much so that the, the brand of cigar that he smoked caught wind that this famer preacher smoked his cigars, and they took out a full-paged ad in the local paper that had their brand and said, the cigar that Charles Spurgeon smokes. And you know what Charles Spurgeon did? He quit smoking cigars because he didn't know who would see that and who might be tripped up by it. I do not drink alcohol. I do not say that to put a trip on you guys or to make you feel like you can't drink alcohol. But the Lord has laid that on my heart. And I feel like, man, I don't ever want to cause another brother or sister to stumble. That they would see me walking out of, of Rayleigh's with a six-pack or with uh, a bottle of wine. I don't even cook with wine because I don't want somebody to think I'm drinking it. And I'm not being legalistic. It's because I don't want somebody to say, Pastor Jeremy can drink. Surely I have the freedom to drink too. But see, then they are, are weaker in that. And it stumbles them and it trips them up and then their lives get wrecked because they saw me drinking. I have a family history of alcoholism, man. My family has been wrecked on both sides through and through from alcoholism. And I don't want you guys or my kids or anybody else finding that, uh, seeing me and thinking it's okay. 
Some of the biggest mistakes I've made in my life are attached to alcohol. Now it's your freedom to drink. Do so cautiously. That is my thing. If we're going to engage in something, we need to make sure it's not going to stumble our brothers. And Paul, what does he say? Check this out. He says, I would rather be a vegetarian for the rest of my life than trip somebody up. What? That is, that's saying something. That is a huge sacrifice. I'm never going to eat a steak again just so I don't trip you up. Whoa. That is huge. But that is the heart that we are to have. That is the heart that we are to have towards uh, one another. It is a big sacrifice. But we are to be more concerned about each other's well-being than we are our own liberty. And see, that's the part of the sermon where I start losing you. We start saying, oh, you're getting legalistic, and we start getting grumpy about it. And hey, listen, we are to, to love each other sacrificially. Why? Because I feel like it, because I want to. No, because Jesus, he lived his life sacrificially for us and laid it down. And by the way, when you live that way, you don't live your life missing out. You live your life filled with joy and purpose. And I can't explain it, but I can tell you one thing. I don't miss alcohol one bit. And I like to drink. Again, I'm not, uh, so <laughs> what'd you learn at church today? Our pastor likes to smoke and drink. No, please don't take that away from today's sermon. But I don't miss it. The Lord has filled me up in so many other ways that I really don't even care. And again, I'm not putting a trip on you. It's just this. Hey, concerning Christian liberty, should we engage? Well, what does the word say? What does your conscience say? How is it going to affect your brother? Let us be looking out for each other. Let us be loving each other. Let us be building each other up, laying down our rights because that's what Christ did for us. And as we come to the, the table of communion this morning, that's what we get to remember. That's what communion's all about, is that Jesus laid down his rights to save us. Do you realize that Jesus left the most amazing, perfect thing in heaven, his throne in heaven, to enter into the filth of humanity, to suffer for our mistakes? And again, Jesus didn't roll up on the scene in an Apache helicopter, you know, escorted by Lamborghinis to live at the Ritz-Carlton now, he was born in a manger to two dirt poor parents in a potent town surrounded by uh, scandal. He laid down his rights to rescue us. And the night that he instituted communion, remember his disciples? They were arguing about who was the best. I'm going to be the best. I'm faster than you are. I'm going to rule with Jesus, not you. And they were so busy arguing about who was the most awesome, that they neglected the most basic hospitalities in washing each other's feet. Like we, we hang out, well, let me take your coat for you. They would wash your feet. Their feet were gnarly. It's nasty. It's, it's the desert. It's hot. They wear leather sandals. They neglected that. So they're all sitting around sniffing each other's stinky feet, arguing about who's best. And Jesus, he doesn't rail on them about how wrong they were. He simply stands up, puts a towel around his waist, and washes their feet the night before he laid down his life for those who would mock him and rip out his beard and blindfold him and punch him and say, say who, who, who prophesy who punched you in the face. He saved those who would spit on him as he hung on the cross. And we say, we get all bent out of shape about not having a smoke or about doing this. 
My prayer for us as we come to the communion table that we would get some perspective and that we would live and walk in all that the Lord has for us. And again, this is, I'm not trying to put a legalistic trip on you, man. Enjoy your freedoms in Christ. But be careful not to take other people out in the process because Jesus died for them too. So Lord, thank you so much. Again, just for the truth that we find in your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we come to the table that we would remember what you've done for us. Lord, that we would remember that you laid down your life that we might experience freedom and joy and life everlasting. Lord, thank you so much. As we come, Lord, we come with hearts that are, are soft. Lord, help us to be those who come uh, and, and reflect, Lord, that we would examine our own hearts. Lord, as we take the, the cracker that represents your body crucified for us, as we take the juice that represents your blood shed for us, as we take those two elements and, and take them into our bodies, Lord, I pray that we would take that truth in again, that we would be reminded of what you've done for us and reminded of who we are now as a result, and that we would be just refreshed and that we would rejoice in that. But Lord, I pray that you would take this time really to just open our eyes. Thank you that you led the way. Help us to walk in all that you've done for us. Thank you again for what you've done on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com.